Amen. Good morning, and welcome to Grace Harvest Baptist Church. Uh, it is good to have you in the Lord's house today. And uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 11. We'll be reading from there, and then chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 15 through 19 in Revelation 11, and then chapter 16, 1 through 11. Before we get there this morning, I want to share something with you that uh, I felt a little bit humorous. I was, I was standing uh, in the back of the church this morning, and uh, for this service, and I was singing, and then somebody leaned over to me and said, you know, Pastor Mark, you told the truth, you can't sing. <laughs> Didn't stop me, though. I know that I can't sing, and I, I, I sing with that joyful noise. Um, the other thing this morning was, Jared, I, I'll say this for you, I was standing in the hallway today, and these three young ladies come up to me, and they go, Pastor Mark, who is that a picture of at the end of the hall? And I said, oh, that's the Prince of Preachers. That's Charles Spurgeon. And I start talking and tell him who Charles Spurgeon was, how he spoke to 10,000 people on a Sunday morning before there was electricity. And he, was, he, he died when he was 50 years old. And they go, he looks like Mr. Davis. <laughs> I said, no, it's not Jared. <laughs> but I appreciate, um, appreciate our young people uh, so much. And I appreciate that we're, we're a place where they can learn about godly men, not perfect men but they can learn about men and women of the faith that have come before us. You know, have you ever thought about uh, the origin of words? Where, where, where do we get words from? What do they mean and, and so forth? And uh, so I'm going to ask you this morning, how many of you here, just by show of hands, know where the word breakfast comes from? We eat breakfast every morning. Where do you, so you got one in the back, one over here, a couple. Well, breakfast comes from the, from the Old English where you break a fast. So they would break the fast before the night before. So we came breakfast. That's, what, that's where the word breakfast comes from. But also, sometimes we say words that don't mean the same thing to everyone. It was a discussion one night. I came in here, on, uh, and um, someone was sharing a story with me, and, and they started saying, I cried so much, I cried crocodile tears. And I was like, that's an oxymoron. Because when you think of crocodile tears, for me, you think of insincerity. And that's exactly what Webster describes it as an insincere type of crying. But, to, but I, was, I was aghast to find out that there were several people in that, when I pulled them together, who said, oh, no, no, I always thought it meant that I cried a lot. And I'm like, think about a crocodile. <laughs> he don't cry about nothing. And he eats everything in his path. But... but you think about things that sometimes we have a misconception. Well, I want to tell you that there's one thing that we can't have a misconception about, and that's eternity. And uh, not understanding uh, heaven and hell. And hell is one of those words that means different things to different people. I want to share with you a quote from a pro progressive Christian pastor. So that means he's not a Christian pastor. His name is Reverend Roger Wolseley. And he's an ordained United Methodist pastor. And he said this, quote, I, along with many other Christians, am agnostic about the afterlife. Talk about an oxymoron. I don't know, he continues, if there's a heaven or a hell. I rather suspect that the only hells that exist are the ones that we create and allow at this time. And there are far too many of those. I don't follow Jesus in order to go to heaven when I die or conversely to avoid going to hell. That's a cheap form of faith that is really nothing more than fire insurance. 
I follow Jesus here and now for the sake of experiencing salvation, which means wholeness and healing here and now, and to help others do the same, unquote. Let me share you a contrast with what C.S. Lewis had to say about regarding hell. Quote, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it, if it lay in my power, referencing hell. But it has the full support of Scripture and specifically of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it, unquote. There's the difference, and the more that we are enlightened, quote-unquote, as Christians, the more people fear man than they fear God. And they deny the truths of Scripture. You see, this is what the Bible says about eternal life, heaven and hell. First of all, everyone will exist eternally, either in heaven or hell. Your, your soul was meant to live forever. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of, those, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but to the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. Everyone has only one life to which to determine their destiny. There is no second chance. Hebrews 9, 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There are no second chances. You either receive Christ while you're alive, or you reject Him. Hell will punish the sin of those who reject Christ. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness. And in verse 50. And will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is forever. Revelation 14.11 And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. This so-called pastor saying that hell doesn't exist. Is sitting, standing in a pulpit somewhere in America today. And the sad truth is there's many more like that. Some will say what I've just shared with you about hell is harsh and they will reject it. But I will echo what R.C. Sproul has said many times. What's wrong with you people? Those who would renounce hell and try to convince a world that there's no fear of a God who says he will pour his wrath out on his creation that turns their, his, their back on Him. The creature, the one who, who renounces Christ, will shake his fist at the Creator, at God Himself, and say, what can you do, me, do to me? What can you do to me? If you think that's not true, wait till you see what God has to share with us this morning. As you stand with me, and we honor the reading of God's Word, as we begin in Revelation chapter 11, Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there was loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the almighty who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
and the nations were enraged, and you and your rage came, and the time came for the dead to be judged and to give rewards to your slaves, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and destroy those who destroy the earth. And the sanctuary of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his sanctuary. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like the de- that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angels of the waters saying, Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to the scorched men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Father God, we come, your people, before the throne of glory this morning. And we've come and we have sung songs of worship to you, Father. We have given of our first fruits back to you, Father, as a sign that we know that all things come from you. And now, Father, as we heard your word proclaimed to us out loud, I pray For the one who does not know you, Lord, who's listening this very hour. For the one, Father, who has rejected the free gift of salvation. I pray, Father, that you turn that heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters, the sheep of this flock, Father. I pray that we are encouraged by these words, knowing, Lord, that the time is near when you reclaim what is rightfully yours and establish the millennial kingdom. Father, I pray that this sermon today would be glorifying to you and edifying to your children. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. And so, as we look at this seventh trumpet, we look at the first five bowls this morning. In verses 15 through 19, the sounding of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 marks a significant milestone in the book of Revelation. It sets here in motion the final events leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of His earthly millennial kingdom. We're getting towards the end now. That the seven bold judgments which represent the final outpouring of God's wrath are included within the seven trumpets is evident from chapter 15, verse 1. And when he says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So these seven plagues that finish God's wrath are the seven bowl judgments. And that's where we start this morning. And then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth 
the seven bowls of the wrath of God in chapter 16, verse 1. Since both the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowls are said to finish God's wrath, the bowls must be part of the seventh trumpet judgment. Remember that when we talked before, we talked about how the seven seals were opened. Worthy was the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory, and He was the one worthy to open up the seals. And as He opened up the seals, we got to the seventh seal. And in the seventh seal was encompassed the seven trumpets. And now we are going, including in that seventh seal from the trumpets, now into the bowl judgments. You know, though God has scattered this kingdom, the kingdom of men, at the Tower of Babel, back in Genesis chapter 11, Satan still rules over the pieces of this once united kingdom. He is the prince of the air. He is the one, the usurper, who God says he is in control of the earth at this time at God's pleasure. Satan rules here. While God ordains human governments for the well-being of man, those same governments refuse to submit to him or acknowledge his sovereignty. We know from Romans 13 that God has placed governments to be an authority in, in even the Roman Empire. And we've talked about that. And it's a good thing, good thing to remind her that God allowed the Roman Empire to be there in order for that period of time for there to be peace in the world like it had never been known before. That Rome, through its empire, had, bro- had brought Roman pox, uh, Roman peace to, that, to the world, to the known world, the Western world. And because of that, there, were no, there was no wars when Jesus was born. And, they, and the apostles could freely travel from, 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 uh, from Jerusalem all the way into Europe. All that was done at God's, under God's sovereignty. And He has placed every government, every ruler that's ever been in place, God has allowed that to happen. And those nations who have honored God have been rewarded and blessed. Our nation had been blessed for, for our, our stand on the gospel and godly principles. No longer are we a nation blessed by God. We are a nation under judgment just as every other nation is under judgment who has turned their back on God. When we, when we uh, usurp God's law and, and try to make what is sin lawful, God will not bless that. He won't bless it in the government. He won't bless it in our lives if we do that. It's a warning to us as Christians. Even though everything falls around us, you, Christian, must stand firm in your faith. You must stand on the Word of God, not what a man says, but what the Word of God says to us. And as Satan rules this this world, we can see it even now becoming more and more evil. It's hard to believe, but that is exactly what's going on. Jesus affirmed that Satan, though a usurper and not the rightful king, is the present ruler of the world. He did this three times in the Gospel of John. He called Satan the ruler of this world. Jesus Christ himself said it. He said it in John chapter 12, verse 31. In John chapter 14, verse 30. And in John chapter 16, verse 11. He referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Satan will not relinquish his kingdom without a struggle. In in a desperate and doomed effort to maintain control of the world, God will allow him to overrun it with hordes of demons. We talked about that last week. 
during the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. We're back in chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But his efforts, his efforts will not keep the true king, which is Jesus, our king, from returning and establishing his earthly kingdom. Jesus Christ will return to sit on the throne of his, uh, of his kingdom and take over the whole world from, the, from what is now controlled satanically by the devil for his minions to f- control. This is really the whole theme of Revelation. The triumph of God over Satan as evil is purged from the world and Christ becomes the holy ruler as we enter into the millennial kingdom. And we will get to that in the weeks to come. But this is all coming to conclusion. We can see the world speeding towards this. It may happen today. It may happen a hundred years from now. But it's coming to this end. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Who are these elders and what do they represent? They represent, they are representations of the glorified, raptured church. These elders had been eagerly waiting for Christ to take back the earth from the usurper, just as every believer is. And we learned before about the martyred saints who are under the throne and they're, they're crying out, when will we be avenged? And they're crying, when, God, will you be avenged? Now we see here that these seven bowls, these seven bowls now will be start to be poured out. Remember, they all called, uh, they're all called plagues in Scripture and have much the same result on the world as the plagues of Egypt had on Pharaoh, but in a much broader scale now. These plagues will show the total rebellion and independence of the creature to his creator. You will not tell me what to do. Don't all of us at some time in our life have an issue with authority? I know I did. When I was a younger man, I, I, I always had issues with authority. I remember one time when I was a sergeant and uh, in the police department, and uh, Hal Moser, he will be speaking uh, to the men again. And I love him dearly as a brother in Christ. Uh, and uh, we were on the SWAT team together. And, and I, I had the privilege of watching him come to Saving Faith. And uh, I was a court sergeant at the time. And uh, something happened. And they had all, we called them white shirts. These are all the guys that, that were lieutenants and above. And they were in the office. And I was a sergeant. And I'm the only sergeant in there. And these captains, lieutenants. And Hal was a captain. And they're all sitting there. And uh, I didn't like what I was hearing. So I let them know it. I let all the administration know that they were wrong. How Moser looked at me, he said, you need to shut your mouth and do what you're told. Yes, sir. <laughs> what do you say? I realized that I was the one that was being insubordinate. I was the one speaking when I didn't have authority to speak. And yet it's always within men and women to buck back at authority. We don't like being told what to do. Now, I know this might be hard for you parents who have little children. And they look at you like you know everything. And you're Superman. And mommy, you're perfect. And they latch onto your leg. But one day they're going to look at you and you're going to tell them to do something. And they're going to say, I ain't doing that. 
And the first thought you're going to have is this sermon. Wow, Pastor Mark told me this was going to happen. And these young teenagers will come up to you and, and, you're, and you're going like, what? What, what? What's the problem here? You know, you're part of this family. I didn't ask you to, to, you know, go to work 40 hours a week and give me all your money. I'm asking you to participate in this family unit. Maybe you could take the trash out? No. I got too much to do. It's always in us to be rebellious. It's always in us. And fortunately, we have parents that love us. They took some of that rebellion out of us. And with me, it came with a belt. That rebellion was removed. I know most people don't do that anymore, but I'm going to tell you what, it straightened this boy out um, to the point where I was like, to my dad, yes, sir. <laughs> Even to the, when I was older, I remember one of my sons, one of my older sons saying, why do you still call your father, sir? Why wouldn't I? He's my father. He's the one that taught me how to be a man and be respectful. You see, the problem with us today is, as a society, we have lost even that facade of respect, almost, for other people. It doesn't take long for, for disagreements and, and things to come back. And it comes from that rebellious spirit. And this rebellious spirit, this, these plagues will show the total rebellion and independence of the creature to his creator. And because of the callousness and the hardening built up in the hearts of men and women, these judgments result in anger and blasphemy from the heart and mouths of men rather than fear and reverence which God demands. They are these, these plagues are hardening plagues which God uses to his own glory, which he has always done. But these plagues, these bold judgments, will crush man's rebellion and remove the, the rebellious from the earth, finally. The completion of this will be accomplished by the return of Christ with His armies, as we call the second coming of Christ. And next week, we will, get, we, will, we will end the sermon as we arrive at this place of the second coming of Christ. Here in Revelation 16:1, God commands all seven of them, these angels, that I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, God says this, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. God says is enough is enough. It's time to end this. And he pours his wrath and judgment upon this evil and perverse world. Have you ever wondered and thought, why does God allow all this to go on? Why? Even the unbeliever will say, if you have a God, why does he allow all this to happen? Why does he allow all this evil to happen? And yet there'll be a time and a place where God says enough is enough. But it's in his timing, not our own. And so you need to understand something. That when, when we're talking about these bowls, these bowls were actually shallow saucers, not bowls as we think of them, deep, that you would put uh, stuff in to mix it in. These are shallow saucers almost and their contents are not slowly or gr gradually poured out but they're dumped out all at once in revelation 16 2 um, responding immediately to god's command the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth Dump, boom poured it out on the earth so the angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image the first bowl results in this harmful and painful sore that afflicts the ungodly. Not the godly, 
the ungodly. Loathsome and malignant uh, translate two Greek general words for evil, and they're used together. They stress that these sores will be festering and painful and incurable. There's nothing they can do to get relief from these sores that God will allow on their persons. The sores will not affect believers whose names have been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Back in Revelation 13.8, we, we were told that. The Antichrist followers, though, are suffering the consequences of having rejected the preaching of the gospel. They reject the preaching of the 144,000, the two witnesses that are in Jerusalem, those who come to saving faith, who share the love of Christ with them and tell them to repent. They, they renounce all of that, and now they are suffering the consequences for the rejection of Christ. Dear one, we are in a time of grace. This is not our world today in the sense that God is pouring out His wrath yet. It's time of mercy and grace. And I'm speaking to the one here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Because this is the consequences for those who shake their fist at God. Who rebel against God. And this is only the beginning of their torment. Dear one, if you... If you haven't received Christ as Savior, I don't know what's hindering you. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if you think that somehow you're going to have all kinds of fun that you're missing out if you come to Christ. I, I'm telling you right now that the joy that comes from salvation outweighs any of the concerns of this world. That the peace that we get as believers knowing that God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you on a cross. That the one who knew no sin, the perfect one, the lamb who took the sins of the world upon himself, suffered and died and was buried and rose on the third day. And he says to you and me, trust in me for your salvation, not your own self. You can't earn it. And when, those, when, when you realize, when you humble yourself, you set aside the rebellious heart that you have, you set aside that anger that you have, may have against God for blaming you the way things are in life, and you fall before a holy God, literally and figuratively, and say, Father, I have sinned against you and you alone. I have broken your law, your commandments. I have lied. I have cheated. Go down the list. If you break one law, you've broken them all, Scripture tells us. You are a sinner in need of salvation, and you acknowledge that, and you acknowledge that Christ is the one who died for you. And you confess that with your mouth and believe in your heart. The Bible says you are His. And because you are His, now that you get up off of the floor, and now you are His, you are a child of, the, of, the, of God, the Creator, you are co-heir with Christ. Everything that is promised to Christ, you have been promised as well. You, you have been promised to be in eternity with Him where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears. And yet you shake your fist at God and say, no, not yet. Christian, we know. We have been given that hope and that love that only God can give us. And my prayer is for every one of us to be at the top of the roof shouting to a lost and dying world to those that we love and care about that truth over and over and over again never think it's too late for somebody you love and care about to receive christ as savior
It's too late when they take their last breath. Not until then. And yet even some of these people in, the, in this time when you think that they would turn to God and they see all of this going on that they would turn to Him. But they don't do that. From Revelation 13.8 we know that this is uh, this, this small remnant of Christians. There's not a whole lot of them there. They're not going to be harmed by it. You know, you, you stop and wonder how many believers are going to be there. Well, all i got to tell you is if, if, if uh, you look at the surveys that Barner does or any other uh, reputable firm that, that does surveys and questionnaires, and, the, and it used to be when you asked this question about, and back in the 90s, about 95% of the people claimed to be Christians. Well, that would include uh, people who were Latter-day Saints and Catholics and, and any other kind of, of belief, even Mormons and all this stuff, they would say that they're, they were Christians. Well, now it, that group is down like 70%, so it's dropped significantly. But folks, most of those people aren't Christians. That guy I quoted to you from this morning, that, that Methodist pastor, he says he's a Christian. And yet he denies the authority of Scripture and what it says. He's not a believer. Do you know that, that uh, we are told that about 3 to 4% of people actually believe that God it's three persons in one. That he, his son, his only begotten son, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died for uh, the forgiveness of sins, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, born of a virgin, believe in a heaven and hell, believe in Satan, believe the things that you and I believe, take for word, it's only three to four percent of the population of America. I want you to think about that. When you're in a crowd of 100 people, there's three or four people that think like you do. Not perfectly like we do. We all have, we can have uh, differences that we don't die on hills over. I, I am, I, R.C. Sproul is, is a man who's heaven, in heaven now who loved the Lord, but I would never be a member of his church. He was a covenant theologian. He, he, he replacement theology. He believed that Israel had been replaced by the church. I don't believe that. Doesn't make he's doesn't mean he's not a believer, and so, but but I'm telling you that group is three to four percent of the people that believe in the essentials of the faith. In other words, you would plant your flag and you would die on those beliefs. And during this time, it'll probably be less. Everywhere that you turn, and during this time, you will see nothing but ungodly people and servants of the antichrist and the false prophet. But those who do, those who stay and receive Christ as Savior during this time, those who don't receive the mark of the beast, they will escape this judgment. The warning of chapter 14, 9 through 11, against worshiping the beast, and which anticipates his ultimate doom. Turn with me there, in your back in your Bibles, to chapter 14, verses, starting in verse 9. This anticipates his ultimate doom and, and that of his system is here confirmed in this preliminary judgment. Verse 9 of chapter 14. Then a, another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. And it would be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment 
goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his images in his image and whoever received the mark of his name. You know what this reminds me of? Have you seen those old black and white reels of Nazi Germany in 1936? And and you and you look at uh, say the Olympics and you look back there and you see uh, all the the Nazi flags in the stadiums and then and then. Uh, through, from 1936 to 1939 before the war actually started when they invaded Poland and and you see all these these propaganda and you see hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Germany in Berlin Zigheil Zigheil and they all got their little swastika bands on women men children and all cheering as Adolf Hitler drives by I envision that is somewhat similar to the mark of the beast these people will rejoice in the Antichrist. They will not be ashamed to be associated with the Antichrist. And they will receive the mark of the beast as they worship him. And yet the believers will not. The believers will not. And they will not suffer the consequences of the ungodly on the first bowl. The second bowl. And the second angel poured out, verse 3, his bowl into the sea. And it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing is in the sea died. And every living thing in the sea died. One of the reasons the bold judgments will be so devastating is their effects are cumulative. Before the sores of the first bowl could heal, the second angel is poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. To the amazement and horror and despair of the world, the oceans will no longer be fluid, but will become thick and dark and like the pool of blood from someone who has been shot or stabbed to death. Here you, here, have, you ever, have you ever smelled something so sickening that it made you physically sick? It was, you know... Um, the other day, Kathy is teaching uh, Chase how to read. And Chase had the stomach virus going around that many of you all had the privilege of experiencing in your families. And uh, Chase decided he was going to throw up in Granny's shoes as she's standing in them. And so Granny just lovingly, like she'd raised her five children, went over there and cleaned it up without a word. And when Crystal found out of it, she said, I'm so glad that it was you because we'd be cleaning up two messes. There's, you know, you think about some of the things, the smells that you've experienced, and if you've ever been around death, and I was around it too much as a police officer, it, it, can, it can make you nauseous uh, to the point sometimes when we would have to call the fire department in and use their turnout gear to breathe. The smell would be so bad. And, but can you imagine... The disgusting odor from the dead, decaying bodies of every living thing that's in the sea? Remember that only partial death occurred at the second trumpet, but now everything dies. The stench will be unimaginable. We've all seen those uh, deaths of, of, of sea life and, and, you know, they, that occur. You get tens of thousands of fish that are washed up, uh, beached whales. Pods of whales that will, will die. And, and can you imagine that's every living creature in the ocean is now dead. Henry Morris writes in his commentary, 
In this toxic ocean, nothing can survive, and soon all the billions of fishes and marine mammals and marine reptiles and the innumerable varieties of marine invertebrates will perish, thus still further poisoning the oceans and contaminating the sea shores of the world. The oceans will have effectively completed their age-long function in the earth's physical economy and will die. He continues, as God has created every living soul in the waters, Genesis 1.21, so now every living soul died in the sea, unquote. Comes full circle. The transforming of the world's seas into these putrid pools of stinking death will be a graphic testimony to the wickedness of man. And the reverse of the day when God originally gave life to the sea creatures. Here it comes, full circle. Let's look at the third bowl in chapter 16, verse 4. Then the third bowl, angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who is, is and who was, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty and true and righteous are your judgments. You know, when you read these verses and you round people that says, My God would never send anybody to hell. My God would never do what you... He would never punish somebody because they have same-sex attraction. My God would never punish somebody because they made a mistake. Well, let's clarify. It's not mistake. It's sin. Whatever we do against God, it's sin. And God will not tolerate sin. I, I, you, need to, you need to highlight this passage in Scripture. <laughs> yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Who, is the, who has the right? What creature has the right to say to the Creator? You have no right. You see, God has every right because God is sovereign. God is a God who was always was and always will be. Every attribute of God has always been with him. If he had to learn anything, if he had to acquire an attribute, then he wasn't God. God has had and is everything he has always been. And we cannot comprehend that. Don't try to comprehend it, because in our feeble little minds, our finite minds, we always say there's got to be a beginning of something. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I'll answer that question. It was the chicken. He created the chicken. It's like on the egg. It's not difficult. God is God, and he will do what is right in his eyes. And we know that his, what is right in his eyes is righteous and just. It's outside of our feeble notions of justice when the third angel poured out his bowl the same terrible judgment that affected the oceans was visited on the rivers and the springs and waters and they too became blood what happened to the nile river in egypt we know as it was turned to blood will happen to the world's entire supply of fresh water all the waters of the world will turn to blood There will be no pure water, except perhaps what has already been stored, but none in the rivers, the lakes, the reservoirs. 
you imagine driving and look at the Appomattox River? Or go and look at Swift Creek Reservoir? Then they go across the James River and it's all blood. The ponds in your, on your land turn to blood. There is no pure water. The angels of the waters is literally the angel, the one of the waters. Right? And, and I, I love this because apparently this refers to an angel who has jurisdiction over the waters of the earth as one of the varied ministries of angels. As the one in charge of this area, he makes an important statement vindicating the holiness here of God and setting forth the reason in the punishment, verses 5 and 6. These apostate and rebellious people have slain and shed the blood of God's people. They have, sled, uh, they have shed the blood of the saints and of the prophets. And so now they will receive what is due them. They will receive the punishment fitting their nature, the nature of their crimes. They have only blood to drink. They have been bloodthirsty. Now they get their fill. And this gives us another indication that during the tribulation, the shedding of the blood of believers will be without parallel in history. Believers have suffered, and they are suffering this day, but nothing like they will during the tribulation period, especially the last three and a half years. The reference in verse 5, who is and who was, again, refers to the eternal essence of God. There is no beginning for Him and there is no end. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. He is the one we worship. He is the perfect one. He is the eternal one. And as the eternal one, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. I always love that. I always think about that. Christ died two days ago. When you think about it like that. Two days ago. And we're impatient. In God's timing, He will call us home at the rapture. In God's timing, the Antichrist and the false prophet will arise. In God's timing, the seven seals will be opened. In God's timing, He will return at the second coming and establish His millennial kingdom. But we as His children are to wait, patiently wait, share the gospel, and live lives that are holy and pleasing to Him. We don't go hide in a cave. We don't, we don't prepare for doomsday. What we do is we prepare to share the gospel each and every day that God gives us, and we have breath in our bodies. I was talking to a, a young man in our church just uh, between services, and one of the things that, that we, we talked about was the, the shortness of life. And, you know, uh, Kathy and I have always said, I said, you know, babe, we're not, we're, I don't care what anybody else tells us. We're not old till we turn 80, okay? Because be, the Bible says that we, what's a man's life, but... 70 or 80 years. I said, once we're 80, we're on borrowed time, okay? We'll not talk about the 70 part. But the truth of the matter is, at 66 years, I've lived longer than most of my ancestors ever thought about living, right? Because man didn't live that long. When my dad was born in 1919, the life expectancy was 55 years old for my dad in 1919. He lived to be 95. But you think about the shortness of life, and then you have young people in their 30s, who die they think that they have another well if they're 36 right now and you're thinking about me you think well i got another 30 years 
before I even get to be pastor's market agent. He said he ain't old, so even though he is. And, and I, I don't have anything to worry about, but the problem is we don't know what God has given us. And so each and every day we should be living for him. Live life to its fullest. Not like the beer commercials where just sin life to its fullest. No, live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. Rejoice in that. Folks, I have more joy in my life in the past 17 years surrendering the call to Christ than I've ever had in my life. I have closer relationships now than I've ever had in my life. I, I, there, I dare say that I could go down to any phone number in my list of members of this church and I could call them at 3 o'clock in the morning and I know they would be there for me. And I pray that you know I would be there for you. I couldn't say that 20 years ago. I'm telling you folks, as a Christian, the joy that we have and the peace that we have knowing Christ and knowing that He loves us to protect us from this, it should just bring you such joy in your life. Such joy. You know, God is long-suffering, but eventually, but eventually God's holiness must act and His judgment against sin will be delayed no longer. Now is the time of grace. Now is the time of salvation. Verse 7 deals with another voice adding to the vindication of God's, of God's acts. So again, we see the important emphasis throughout history. Satan has maligned the character of God who sentenced Satan and his angels to the lake of fire. This has been displayed in the rebellious hearts of men of all ages who persistently operate under the delusions that somehow Satan is the one they need to worship. Now, nobody comes out right now and says, I worship Satan. They don't do that. It will be, when, when this time comes, they'll be right out in front worshiping the Antichrist as, as, as their Savior, as their God. Now, they just deny God. We deny God. And it's all about me and self. And how dare you tell me that I can't live this life? How, tell, how dare you tell me that your truth is my truth? No, my truth is here. You see, our truth can change. God's truth never changes. And so as we look at God's truth, and you want to tell me things uh, that aren't true, and I go here to tell you that, and they go, well, that's not my truth. Well, you're deceived. You're deceived. The tribulation will show God is a God of holiness who is acting justly in His judgment against sin. Fourth, fourth bowl. Verse 8, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to the, it to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who, was the authority, who has the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent as to give him glory. Here again, again, man shaking his fist at God. And in contrast to the first three angels who poured out their bowls on the earth, the fourth angel now pours his bowl out on the sun. And as a result, the sun, which has since the fourth day of creation, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, has given the world light, warmth, and energy, now becomes a deadly killer. Like the fourth trumpet, the heavens are again affected, especially the sun. In the fourth trumpet, one-third of the sun, moon, and stars were affected, diminishing the light by one-third, both night and day. And the earth will have been living under these conditions all these months 
between these judgments is a constant appeal to men to repent. This is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent from your sin. Turn to the only one who can save you. Now, by contrast, only the son is affected and its condition is here reversed. Rather than being diminished, it is now increased in its intensity. Whether this is caused by earth and the sun moving closer together or simply that God increases the heat of the sun, we don't know, but it will happen. The point is God will increase the intensity of the sun's heat and light rays to such a degree that it will scorch and burn the skin of the ungodly here. You know, climate change activists always are worried about what's going to happen. They ain't seen nothing yet when it comes to global warming. The sun will scorch men with fire. Uh, in describing the grace of God in Psalm 19.6, we read, There's nothing hid from the heat of the sun. And such will surely be the case here in this intensified way. Only then it will be judgment from God. There will be no escape from the judgment for the unbelievers. The sun's rays will penetrate everything. Literally here, the Greek has to scorch the men with fire. The use here, and, and, and I'm going to get deep here for just a second because it's important to understand this, the use of the article specific, uh, spe, excuse me, specifies a particular group of people here. Okay, Those mentioned in connection with the first bowl, unbelievers, worshipers of the beast. That's what is indicated here in the Greek grammar. So this does not affect believers. They will be protected from this. It will again happen to the unbelievers. How that works, I don't know. And then we read, And they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent. They did not repent. They did not repent as to give Him glory. Isn't this beyond our imagination? I mean, it's beyond comprehension that all of this is going on and they know God is doing it and yet they reject Him. The hardening of the soul poses a warning for all of us. Anyone who becomes negative to the Lord grows indifferent to His Word and ignores the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit can bring a hardening of the heart that becomes more and more calloused. And Christians, we need to be careful of that. It doesn't affect your salvation, but it sure affects our effectiveness for the Lord and His work. It's, it's all of us need to be praying that, that God would remove that, that, that issue in our lives that would cause us bitterness or division or, 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 or anything that would cause the name of the Lord to be defamed by our actions. One way we can see such a conditioning developing in our own lives is when we start to murmur and complain. It's not good. And I have to repent of that constantly. Complaining and murmuring. And I think about how good God has treated me. And yet, so many times, I say that's not enough. Shame on me. The fifth bowl. Then this fifth angel, verse 10 poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Again, the hardening 
of their hearts. You know, you wonder how people get like this. I, I was listening to a sermon this week by Paul Washer, and um, he, was at the, he was at a founder's conference, and it was just a couple of weeks ago. And I loved his description of unsaved people. Now, we've all heard that we, are, we were dead in our trespasses. And uh, you've probably heard R.C. or John MacArthur or any Reformed pastor say that they were at the bottom of the ocean dead. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead man come alive. Never. And so when the Bible tells us that we're dead in our trespasses, at the bottom, when we look at think about the bottom of the ocean, we're thinking, well, okay, somebody's got to make us come alive. Well, I love what Paul Washer, how Paul Washer described it. What he said was, I want you to think about a dead man being in the bottom of a cesspool. Now, you get that image in your mind, and that cesspool is made up of the excrement of his own sin. And he's laying at the bottom of that dead, shaking his fist at God. You're doing all this? And that cesspool, that filth that's in there, Paul Washer says, but every once in a while there's a little ladle that gets dipped in there. And that ladle is stirred around. And so there's motion in that. And you know what that ladle is, he says? It's man's desire to keep on sinning in that filth. You see, outside of Christ giving us the faith to believe we are stuck in that cesspool and that's why these people are still shaking their fist at God. How do you explain seeing all this, hearing the testimony of these people that are being slaughtered and going to their deaths, praising the one who saved them, and yet they did not repent of their deeds. Wow. Wow. You see, since the beast rules particularly the entire world, and since there are the, these are the last plagues of the tribulation which complete the wrath of God to establish God's rule on earth, the darkness that we see here described as these people do not repent is worldwide. And the pain is so intense that it says, what did they do? They were in such torment that they started gnawing on their tongues because of pain. Now, folks, I, I am not, I, I am a wimp when it comes to pain. I don't like it at all. I can't stand it. Uh, I, I, I bellyache and cry. And I had a kidney stone about f- six years ago now, five or six years ago. And I was crawling around on the ground in my house, just crawling around on the ground crying, trying to get in every position to, to make it stop hurting as I felt, felt like Edward Scissorhand was sticking his hand inside my kidney, grabbing it and twisting it and not letting go. And I'm screaming, ah, ah, I'm dying in here. And Kathy's going, come on, let's go. To the... So I get, the, get in the car, go to the emergency room. We're driving down and uh, we're heading up on 60. And the next thing I know, Kathy, we're in the passing lane. She puts on her turn signal to get in the right lane. And she moves over. And I see a car pass me. I said, what are you doing? She goes, they wanted to pass. I'm dying here. If you don't shut up, I'm going to put you out on the side of the road right now. I get there. I'm in such pain. I'm standing at the counter. I'm leaning over like this. 
And there's a, somebody who knows me as Pastor Mark is standing over there and goes, Pastor Mark, is that you? Are you okay? No, I'm dying. And I remember that, that excruciating pain until they gave me some medicine. I'm getting there getting my MRI. And, uh, and, the, and I, I look up and I go, man, that, that is really cool that you've got them clouds up there moving across the ceiling. And he goes, that's the pain medicine, sir. That's not, well, whatever it was, you stopped Edward Scissorhands from slicing me up. But that's, that's your weak pastor. When I read this passage, I thought, that's exactly how much pain I was in. I, wanted, I would do anything to relieve that pain. And Scripture says that they gnaw on their tongues because of the pain. And you think about this, this is an accumulated effect of, of the other four preceding bowls. Boom, 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 boom. The sores, the sea smitten, the fresh water turned to blood, the scorching of the sun, and now the total darkness. Unbelieving people of the world are shut up in their houses with their sores and their pain and their afflictions with no hope and in constant torment. But yet, what do they do? Shake their fist. They blasphemed, verse 11 says, they blasphemed the God of heaven and they did not uh, repent of their deeds. This clearly tells us that the world will be conscious that the God of heaven is the source of these judgments. There's no doubt. There's no doubt who is doing this. All mankind will know, like the demons, that God exists. There will be no atheists or agnostics at this time. There will be no atheists, no agnostics. They all know it's God. Oh, when we stop and think the hardness and stubbornness of the human heart. Romans 3.10 says this. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is none, not even one, not even one. Here we see the death of universalism. The notion that everyone will wind up in heaven. That's not the case. I started off sharing that with you. Hell is real. Heaven is real. And we will spend eternity one place or the other. We who belong to Christ will spend eternity with Him. Those who do not and have not trusted as Lord and Savior will spend eternity in hell suffering forever and ever. I conclude with this. Turn with me to Romans 1. We'll we're going to conclude with a passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It kind of wraps this all up. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, 
They did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As I close with that first chapter of the book of Romans, we see the hardness of man's heart even during the time of grace. And yet, dear one, if you're here today and you are outside the salvation of Christ, I beg you, I beg you, I plead with you to return from your sin. We call it repentance, which is saying that God, I am I have sinned against you, O holy God. Forgive me for my sin. I, Lord, with, I will turn from that sin, which I know, I know, Lord, makes me an enemy of yours. And not only that, but you put your faith and trust in Christ that He's the one that saved you, that He's the one that died for you. The Bible tells you if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He was raised from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, you won't live a perfect life. None of us have since we've come to Christ. It grieves us when we sin, and that's the difference. We, we repent of that sin. Never do we stand in judgment of that sin. We are His. We are His children. And just as a father loves his children, God loves us so the much more. If you don't know Him, cry out to Him for salvation. You may have done that this week already. And in just a moment, I will stand up front before you. And if God has made you his, I pray that you come and let this preacher know. The Bible tells us that we're to confess with our mouth. We're to make it public. I pray that that is your desire this day. Some of you, the Lord has said, this is the place that I want to be, me and my family, to be members of Grace Harvest Baptist Church. Not a perfect place, but a place I know that stands on the word of God desires to see him glorified some of you have never followed the lord in believers baptism we're going to have a baptism here on easter sunday 11 o'clock service so excited to be able to to uh, baptize somebody on easter sunday what a great day to be baptized if you've never come to, to that place in your life where you have been obedient when it comes to baptism 
The Bible tells us that, that we repent and believe and baptiz- baptize. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's the first act of obedience that we're commanded to do. And if you've never done that, I pray that you come up, grab this preacher by the hand, and tell me that you want to be baptized just like Jesus was in obedience to the Father. However God's working, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine how God spoke to you this, this hour as through the power of the Holy Spirit that is in you and dwells in me as well. Don't leave this place without getting straight with God. Father, I thank you for the proclamation of your word today. I thank you for your people. Oh, what a sweet body this is, Father. A body of believers that are not perfect, Father that fail you miserably, and yet, Father, you love us so dearly. May, Father, you bless them, and may you, may you, Father, strengthen each one of our walk and bring the one who doesn't know you as Savior to saving faith. May your will be done. In Jesus' precious name, amen.